Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fireside Poems. I'm Dr. J. Today's episode is the second of four from John Greenleaf Whittier's long poem, Snowbound. Snowbound recounts Whittier's experience of a snowstorm as a boy on his family's farm. In last week's episode, I read the first part of the poem, which describes the coming on of the snowstorm, the snowstorm itself, and the resulting closing in of the farm's house and barn. The middle part of Snowbound, from which I'll be reading both today and next week, presents the small group Snowbound within the house, the poet's family, and two boarders. The phrase Snowbound may sound grim, but the experience Whittier describes is anything but grim. It is cozy and cheerful. There is a warm fire and plenty of firewood. There are mugs of cider and roasting chestnuts, a dog and a cat also enjoying the fire. In addition to playing games and reading to each other, the poet particularly remembers an anti-slavery poem from his school book, those gathered around the fire take turns telling stories, beginning with the father and mother telling stories of their youth. Let's join them around the fire. From John Greenleaf Whittier's Snowbound We sped the time with stories old, wrought puzzles out and riddles told, or stammered from our schoolbook lore, the chief of Gambia's golden shore. How often since, when all the land was clay in slavery's shaping hand, as if a trumpet called, I've heard De Mercy Warren's rousing word. Does not the voice of reason cry, claim the first right which nature gave, from the red scourge of bondage fly, nor deign to live a burdened slave? The poem Whittier quotes from is The African Chief by Sarah Wentworth. Whittier misremembers the author as Mercy Warren. Both were important literary figures from the revolutionary and post-revolutionary period. That Whittier quotes the African chief from memory, he'd have gotten its author right if he'd looked it up, shows the profound effect it had on him in shaping his own anti-slavery view, which led to him being referred to by Frederick Douglass as the slave's poet. The African Chief was included in The American Preceptor, a school book edited by Caleb Bingham, which was used throughout New England through the 19th and into the 20th century. Wikipedia summarizes it thus. Selections, often about two pages in length, draw attention to the evils of slavery, the importance of clemency toward the unfortunate, including one's captive enemies, personal virtue and industry, religious tolerance, and the education of girls. Some stories recite the acts of a virtuous American Indian, African, Moor, Catholic, or other person, sometimes in contrast to a less virtuous white or Christian character. Bingham also takes aim at characters who care more about fashion, entertainments, or lapdogs than about honest labor, solid education, and duties within the household. 
It perhaps would make a good school book today. Whittier now begins his series of portraits, beginning with his father, who tells stories of his adventures as a young man in the forests and villages of French Canada and along the seashore of New England. Our father rode again his ride on Memphremagog's wooded side, sat down again to moose and samp in trapper's hut and Indian camp, lived o'er the old idyllic ease beneath St. Francois's hemlock trees. Again for him the moonlight shone on Norman cap and bodice zone. Again he heard the violin play which led the village dance away, and mingled in its merry world the grandam and the laughing girl. Or, nearer home, our steps he led, where Salisbury's level marshes spread mild wide as flies the laden bee, where merry mowers, hale and strong, swept side on side their swaths along the low green prairies of the sea. We shared the fishing off Boar's Head, and round the rocky isles of shoals, the hake broil on the driftwood coals, the chowder on the sand beach made, dipped by the hungry steaming hot with spoons of clamshell from the pot. We heard the tales of witchcraft old, and dream and sign and marvel told to sleepy listeners as they lay, stretched idly on the salted hay, adrift along the winding shores when favoring breezes deigned to blow the square sail of the gundalow and idly lay the useless oars. The moose and samp, the father tells of, were the meat of the moose and a porridge made from corn, the sustenance of trapper and Indian alike, both of whose meals he shared in the Canadian forest. The mother tells of a very different experience of Indians. She grew up on a farm in a town that had been attacked by Indians. The lives of French trappers harmonized well with the lives of the native people, and there was brotherhood between them. The English agricultural life with its need of extensive lands for the raising of cows and sheep, on the other hand, clashed irrevocably with native ways of life, leading to war and violence as Europeans pushed Indians from their lands from one end of the North American continent to the other. The mother's stories differ from the father's in other ways as well. Her youth was not a life of wild wanderings, but of domestic simplicity in rural Massachusetts. Let's return to the mother as she spins her wheel and tells her stories. Our mother, while she turned her wheel around the new net stocking heel, told how the Indian hordes came down at midnight on Cochico Town and how her own great-uncle bore his cruel scalp mark to fourscore recalling in her fitting phrases so rich and picturesque and free the common unrhymed poetry of simple life and country ways, the story of her early days. She made us welcome to her home. Old hearths grew wide to give us room. We stole with her a frightened look at the gray wizard's conjuring book, 
the fame whereof went far and wide through all the simple countryside. We heard the hawks at twilight play, the boat horn on Piscataquay, the loon's weird laughter far away. We fished her little trout brook, knew what flowers in woods and meadows grew, what sunny hillsides autumn brown she climbed to shake the ripe nuts down. Saw where in sheltered cove and bay the duck's black squadron anchored lay, and heard the wild geese calling loud beneath the gray November cloud. The mother now turns from her own stories to stories that derive from her Quaker background, from William Sewell's history of the Quakers, including its stories of Quaker martyrdom. Every Christian group of that day had its books of martyrdom in the hands of other Christians, sadly, and the journal of Thomas Chalky, an itinerant Quaker preacher who spent time as a ship's captain. These stories, by turns tragic and wondrous, also had a profound and lasting effect on the boy now remembering them as a man. Then, with a look more grave and soberer tone, some tale she gave from painful Sewell's ancient tome, beloved in every Quaker home, of faith fire-winged by martyrdom, or Chalky's journal, old and quaint, gentlest of skippers, rare sea-saint, who, when the dreary calms prevailed, and water-butt and bread-cask failed, and cruel hungry eyes pursued his portly presence mad for food, with dark hints muttered under breath of casting lots for life and death, offered, if heaven withheld supplies, to be himself the sacrifice. Then suddenly, as if to save the good man from his living grave, a ripple on the water grew, a school of porpoise flashed in view. Take, eat, he said, and be content. These fishes in my stead are sent by him who gave the tangled ram to spare the child of Abraham. Next, and the last of the portraits I'll read today, comes Whittier's aunt, who, as an unmarried woman, must live with them or have no home. She, too, tells of her youth. Her portrait is touched throughout with the disappointment of her never marrying and with Whittier's criticism of those who make fun of women who never marry, which we perhaps unconsciously repeat when we play the card game Old Maid, whom no one wants to be stuck with. Next, the dear aunt, whose smiles of cheer and voice in dreams I see and hear. The sweetest woman ever fate perverse denied a household mate, who, lonely, homeless, not the less found peace in love's unselfishness, and welcome wheresoe'er she went, a calm and gracious element, whose presence seemed the sweet income of womanly atmosphere of home called up her girlhood memories, the huskings and the applebees, the sleigh rides and the summer sails, weaving through all the poor details and homespun warp of circumstance a golden woof-thread of romance. 
for while she kept her genial mood and simple faith of maidenhood, before her still a cloudland lay, the mirage loomed across her way, the morning dew that dries so soon with others glistened at her noon, through years of toil and soil and care, from glossy tress to thin gray hair, all unprofane she held apart the virgin fancies of the heart. Be shamed to him of woman born, who hath for such but thought of scorn. I've paused to introduce each segment to help you follow along, but doing so interrupts what should be a woven whole, a whole woven with rhyme and rhythm and setting. Now that you know the parts, let me read again without the interruptions. From Snowbound by John Greenleaf Whittier We sped the time with stories old, wrought puzzles out and riddles told, or stammered from our school book lore the chief of Gambia's golden shore. How often since, when all the land was clay in slavery's shaping hand, as if a trumpet called, I'd heard Dame Mercy Warren's rousing word. Does not the voice of reason cry, claim the first right which nature gave, from the red scourge of bondage fly, nor deign to live a burdened slave? Our father rode again his ride on Memphremagog's wooded side sat down again to moose and samp in trapper's hut in Indian camp, lived o'er the old idyllic ease beneath Saint-Francois' hemlock trees. Again for him the moonlight shone on Norman cap and bodiced zone. Again he heard the violin play which led the village dance away and mingled in its merry world the grandam and the laughing girl. Or, nearer home, our steps he led where Salisbury's level marshes spread mile-wide as flies the laden bee, where merry moors, hale and strong, swept scythe on scythe their swaths along the low green prairies of the sea. We shared the fishing off Boar's Head, and round the rocky isle of shoals, the hake-broil on the driftwood coals. The chowder on the sea-beach made, dipped by the hungry, steaming hot, with spoons of clamshell from the pot. We heard the tales of witchcraft old, and dream and sign and marvel told to sleepy listeners as they lay, stretched idly on the salted hay adrift along the winding shores when favoring breezes deigned to blow the square sail of the gundalow and idle lay the useless oars. Our mother, while she turned her wheel or run the new net stocking heel, told how the Indian hordes came down at midnight on Cochico town and how her own great-uncle bore his cruel scalp mark to fourscore recalling in her fitting phrases so rich and picturesque and free the common unrhymed poetry of simple life and country ways, the story of her early days. 
She made us welcome to her home. Old hearths grew wide to give us room. We stole with her a frightened look at the gray wizard's conjuring book. The fame whereof went far and wide through all the simple countryside. We heard the hawks at twilight play, the boat horn on Piscataquay, the loon's weird laughter far away. We fished her little trout brook, knew what flowers and wood and meadow grew, what sunny hillsides autumn brown she climbed to shake the ripe nuts down. Saw where in sheltered cove and bay the duck's black squadron anchored lay and heard the wild geese calling loud beneath the gray November cloud. Then, with a look more grave and soberer tone, some tale she gave from painful Sewell's ancient tome, beloved in every Quaker home, of faith fire-winged by martyrdom or Chalky's journal, old and quaint, gentlest of skippers, rare sea saint, who, when the dreary calms prevailed, and water butt and bread cask failed, and cruel hungry eyes pursued his portly presence, mad for food, with dark hints muttered under breath, of casting lots for life or death, offered, if heaven withhold supplies, to be himself the sacrifice. Then suddenly, as if to save the good man from his living grave, a ripple on the water grew, a school of porpoise flashed in view. Take, eat, he said, and be content. These fishes in my stead are sent by him who gave the tangled ram to spare the child of Abraham. Next, the dear aunt whose smile of cheer and voice and dreams I see and hear. The sweetest woman ever fate perverse denied a household mate, who, lonely, homeless, not the less found peace in love's unselfishness, and welcome wheresoe'er she went a calm and gracious element, whose presence seemed the sweet income and womanly atmosphere of home, called up her girlhood memories, the huskings and the apple bees, the sleigh rides and the summer sails, weaving through all the poor details and homespun warp of circumstance, a golden woof thread of romance, for well she kept her genial mood and simple faith of maidenhood. Before her still a cloudland lay, the mirage loomed across her way. The morning dew that dries so soon with others glistened at her noon. Through years of toil and soil and care, from glossy tress to thin gray hair, all profane she held apart the virgin fancies of her heart. Be shame to him of woman born who hath for such but thought of scorn. My students, as we read and discussed these lines together, envied not so much the lives they tell of, though these, of course, are pleasant, more pleasant than they probably were, but the closeness of shared talk and stories. I visited the dentist this morning, 
and talked with the new young hygienist, newly married, about the last couple of years. Yes, they've been awful, she agreed, but it's also been nice to spend so much time together with family, just talking and learning about one another. Perhaps 40 years from now, she'll write a poem, COVID Bound. She did say that English was her favorite subject. I hope you're enjoying Whittier Snowbound, and that you'll join me again next week as I continue reading from it. If you think others might enjoy Fireside Poems, please let them know about it through your social media so that they might join you and me each week by the Fireside.